Father, we thank you again. We praise you for who you are. And we thank you that we can know who you are because you have revealed yourself to us through your word. We thank you for your word that you have inspired and recorded and preserved so that, that what we hold bef- have before us, Lord, is, is, is not the speculations of man, but the revelation of, of who you are as you've revealed yourself to us. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that it teaches us, Lord, everything we need for life and godliness. And it, it teaches us, Lord, about the, the fate of, of eternity, Lord. And so, Father, we pray. We thank you that you revealed these things to us for a reason, that we would know you more, that we would know uh, your truth more, that, 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 would, um, that we would be able to respond in life and godliness to the things of this world in light of the, the world to come. And in the same way, Lord, that, that we would be able to, to be salt and light and witnesses because as those who know the truth. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, as we study these things, that you'd help us to do so humbly, to, to submit ourselves to who you are and what you've revealed, and, and as, as well to, to study that we, we study that we do so boldly, Lord, that, that in, in, in thanksgiving that we have the truth that you revealed to us. And so we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been talking about eschatology, this doctrine of the last things, and we've been talking uh, about, really, we started with the final judgment in this last unit here, and we looked at that one of the clearest and most emphasized doctrines in the New Testament is that we will all face a final judgment before God. Almost every New Testament book throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament as well, that this is, is a com- consistently reinforced um, truth. And then, and then from that, that final judgment is where we, we've been looking at that the results of that final judgment are these final or these eternal states. Today we're going to continue looking at the final state of the wicked, which is what we, we call hell. It's one of, hell is one of many terms or several terms that's used and that Jesus specifically uses to describe this final state of the wicked. And then, uh, Lord willing, if we finish this week, we'll look starting next week at the final state of the righteous, which is also called heaven. Um, so we started looking last week. We started looking, first of all, at various conceptions, even by those who would call themselves Christians, at, at this idea regarding hell. And we started that, looked at that most of these, precept, well, not most, but several of these positions, they really start with this foundation. They start with this presupposition that they just start by rejecting out of hand what God has revealed in his word about hell. Uh, they reconceptualize, they re-image hell as Usually, it's some sort of reimagination or some representation of kind of the current life. While others would uh, even reconceive hell as future, but as some sort of nothingness. But in all of that, just really rejecting what the Bible would actually say. And so we started looking at the biblical teaching on hell. Um, and we saw that it wasn't a minor doctrine, it wasn't an unclear doctrine, that there was substantial teaching about it. We also noticed that the most significant teaching about hell came from Jesus. More, Jesus talked about hell more than any other uh, person in the New Testament. Jesus believed in hell. Jesus taught specifics about hell. No one in scripture taught more about hell than Jesus. Um, so through the biblical evidence, we saw the support for really this, the Christian, historic Christian Orthodox view is that, his, that hell is eternal conscious punishment. That's, probably, that's the best way to sum up the biblical evidence. Hell is eternal conscious punishment. And this punishment is not about a bloodthirsty God who delights in torment, but it's about who, a God who rightly brings his justice 
for man's cosmic rebellion. And so we looked at the evidence for two of those words last week. We looked at the evidence throughout the Bible, first of all, of, of for conscious, this is a conscious punishment, and then also a conscious punishment. So really those two words we looked at, we saw that routinely, especially through uh, the Gospels and Jesus' teaching. But I put off that third word, um, that, e- that word eternal, we saw some hints of that. We saw some descriptions of that. But I want to look a little bit more in detail because within Christian evangelicalism, there's usually not a lot of, of disagreement about hell as conscious punishment. There really there just really isn't. But there has, especially in the last, you know, last generation or so, there's been more debate on the, 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 this, the aspect of the eternality of hell, uh, especially coming from one particular, um, well, well just from, from John Stott and, and some who had who picked up on his teaching. So I want to look at that and look at the biblical argument there and, and look through that, that concept. So let's look at here the, the eternality of hell. And, and that's the idea of the, the understanding that the Bible teaches of, that, that there's eternal punishment for sin. And, and that, that's an idea that has been fairly prominent throughout church history. It's been the majority position. Every once in a while, there, there are some that would um, have minority positions that that's not true, but that's been the majority position of the church throughout church history. We can trace all the way back to the New Testament. Um, those who reject this view hold a view that's called, would, would be called annihilationalism, uh, um, so, or, or, sorry, annihilationism. So that's the, to, to, so that the idea, that's the idea really that, well, I guess as a broad idea, it denies the eternality of punishment. It denies that there is eternal punishment. There's actually various forms of this that you can trace here and there. Um, uh, Clark Pinnock, who, who is a, a, a um, I, I mean, he would call himself a Christian uh, theologian today. I, I think there's some, Difficult to with that term, but um, Seventh Day Adventists would also deny this in, in various ways. Um, many of these actually deny the whole idea also of judgment and punishment. The idea is that as soon as the wicked die, they just cease to exist. Um, often this argument is based on the idea of the love of God. They exalt God's love in, in a way that would really deny any sort of judgment or punishment of the wicked. But the problem, that there's, a, there's a biblical problem of this and there's a philosophical problem for this. If, just for the basic idea if, of this argument from the love of God. First of all, we see that the God who's revealed himself as love, right? God is love, is the same God who taught us about hell. So you can't really say, well, we're going to take that part and not this part. Um, the philosophical argument, I think, is made by, by several of saying that a loving God must hate sin. And a loving God must show justice against sin, or he would cease to, to show the character of, of love. That the, the opposite of love is, is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference, right? So, so is, if you're saying that you love someone, it's, it's, you're saying that, that um, to love someone is to hate the things that are destroying that, that person or that thing. And so uh, the opposite of, of, of love is not hate. The opposite of love really is indifferent. So that's the philosophical argument, the biblical argument against kind of the broader forms of annihilationism. But the most popular form of this view, the one I want to dialogue a little bit with, and the one that you might come in contact with, kind of a broader Christianity, broader evangelicalism, was promoted by, made popular really by John Stott. Um, John Stott is a, a brilliant Christian theologian. I'm, I'm thankful for a lot of his work. Um, he, he is often quoted by, by many uh, commentators and, and um, uh, pastors, especially his, his, some of his work on First John. But... Um, 
he would hold that there is a final judgment. So he would hold that the, the truth of the, the Bible about the final judgment. He would also hold the truth of conscious punishment. He would say the wicked go into conscious punishment because he says the Bible clearly teaches this doctrine of hell um, and conscious punishment. However, John Stott would hold uh, that, he, that, that after sinners have suffered for a certain period of time, bearing the wrath of God for their sins, then they cease to exist after that time. <clears throat> and so this is probably, I want to interact with this with, for two reasons. One of it is because it's probably the most prominent amongst maybe, maybe circles that you may, may hear of or, or, or discuss of people who would claim to be Christians, claim to uh, uh, value the, the truth of the scripture and yet would hold this. And second of all, he's probably the only one I've seen to try to make real good biblical arguments for this. So it's not just a, unlike a lot of the other positions we've looked at that just say, well, we're going to make this argument because we're just chucking out half the Bible. Well, there's your problem, right? John Stott actually is trying to make biblical arguments. Now we're going to look at those arguments. We're going to see why they really fail, but just to, just to see and, and look at and, and dialogue with him on this. Um, all right, so let's, let's look at his biblical arguments. Um, and, and, and I want to show that they really just don't hold up under the scrutiny of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to do this in a brief way. If you want a more thorough presentation, looking at Stott, his arguments, and the rebuttal, uh, Wayne Grudem does a great job in his systematic theology. There's also um, a, a paper by Robert Peterson that you can find. Actually, it's, it's uh, usually don't have access, but it's free online. He, he, it's, a, it's for a paper presented to the Evangelical Theological Society. It was in the ETS Journal. So if you look up ETS, Robert Peterson, Peterson does a great job of really uh, re, re, um, uh, re, uh, rebutting the uh, arguments here. What is the article? Uh, it's, it's, ooh, I... So if you look up Robert Peterson, ETS, um, and then, you know, John Stott, Annihilationism. You, yeah, if you Google it, it'll show up. Um, yeah. Um, Seventh Day Adventists would hold to it, but they would hold to a different form versus Stott that they would throw out much more biblical evidence. Where Stott's trying to at least re- reconcile with that. Yeah. Yeah. So Seventh Day Adventist, um, and there's some others. <clears throat> Again, it's not a prominent view. It's, it's always been a, a, a minority view throughout church history. You see um, Thomas Aquinas going against it. You see Augustine <clears throat> writing against it. So there's always been minorities that have have, have suggested this sort of thing. Uh, but you so because you, you see you see major Christian theologians throughout church history kind of engaging with that and saying it just doesn't line up with the, with, with biblical truth. So. Um, so let's look at a couple things. Why do we believe this? Why does scripture teach this? And, and again, I think Stott is a helpful dialogue partner of, you know, looking at the scriptures and what do they really teach? Um, and so Stott's first argument is from the vocabulary of the, just the word that the scripture uses of destruction. Right? And so here's Stott's argument. Stott would say, we take words literally, right? So when Jesus talks about eternal destruction or talks about that, that um, you, know, lie, you know, you go to life or you go to destruction, what does destruction mean? It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> right? So, so Stott would say, we want to we interpret scripture literally. Yes. And that's the difficulty when you start saying... Uh, when you start saying words mean this, right? 
And, and that's what we've looked at in this class over and over and over again. When you say words always and only mean this, then what you're doing is, that's just not, that's not human communication. That's not language, right? Language, words almost never only mean this, right? Yeah. Huh? Um, I can't remember how it's translated. I, I want to say it's noun, but I can't remember. So, yeah, I don't think so. Cause oftentimes it's, I, I, I'd have to look, um, I think it's a noun, but I can't remember. So, um, but, but what Stott would say, Stott would, so Stott, Stott wants to, it is, it's a simplistic argument, right? He's saying when we say destruction, it, destruction means it's gone. It's destroyed. And in general, I would say that is the majority, when we use the word destruction, that does, is what it means, you know, majority of the time. But here's the two problems. The first problem is that's not how language works. Language does not always mean the same thing. Second of all, when we say we want to take a word literally, we want to take a word literally according to how the author's using it in context, right? But, but let's look at, you know, just to look at a couple examples. Look at Matthew 7. Thirteen and fourteen. So this is one of the examples that um, that Stott would give. Matthew seven, thirteen and fourteen. Let's see if I can pull it up here. And uh, well, I'm pulling that up here in in accordance. Can I have someone read thirteen and fourteen? I'm trying to pull this up here. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. All right, so I'm trying to pull this up to see if I can figure out. I'm pretty sure it's a noun, destruction. Destruction is a noun. Yeah, it's a noun. It's a uh, uh, apoleia. So, yeah, it's it's, it's a noun form. Um, so, So, Stott's point is, there's a way to life, there's a way to destruction, we want to take this word literally, and so that seems to be what he's talking about, that the opposite of life is, is destruction. We see the same thing in uh, Matthew 10, 28, same thing in John 3, 16. Um, and, and here's my point, I would say, if those are the only passages that use the word destruction, Stott could have an argument, right? If that's the only time destruction's used then it's really saying, well, here's our way that we want to interpret destruction, and here's your way we want to interpret, you want to interpret destruction, and that would be it. But the problem for Stott's argument is that's not the only place that destruction's used. That there are sometimes more context to tell us when we look at the range of meanings, right, that one of the meanings of destruction is, you know, cease to exist. He is right that um, that, that is one of the meanings. But there are other ways, as D- Dave was pointing out, that, that the one day I forget to bring my markers. All right. Uh, there, are other, there are other ways that we can use destruction as well. So turn to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 2 Yeah, um, but as it is, I mean, I, I don't know, and, and, and I don't want to put words in Stott's mouth. I mean, to, to, to play maybe what he might say is, 
is that as the city as you know it is no longer there, yeah, there you go. right? Um, <clears throat> but you, you could say, right? You could say, that um, nah, wouldn't be good. You could say, it wouldn't be the Niners. You say the Chiefs destroyed the Texans three weeks ago. And then you would say, well, the Texans still are there, but they were destroyed. Right. Th- that second half utterly destroyed them. And that's the question. Is it, is, 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 and that's what, there's a couple of issues with words because words can have, be used in different ways. So, so let's look here real quick. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. For they, um, oh, I'm in 1 Thessalonians. That's not going to help us, is it? Okay, here we go. Uh, so it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So, Here's, there's a couple problems here. So here you have another use of the, the, ver- the same noun, but there's a couple um, further descriptors that are being attached here that give a further description of this destruction, right? What are the, some of the things that are attached language-wise now? It's not just, just straight destruction, but we have some other things that are attached here. We have everlasting or eternal destruction. Well, there's, there's a difficulty here with, with this aspect of, you could try to make the, the, the argument of, well, this is a destruction with eternal results. Here's the problem. That, that word, word just, the, the, the adjective just doesn't get used that way. Eternal, we're going to see later, eternal is, 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 it is talking about results, yes. But it's also talking about length, eternality and length, as we, in the sense of the Bible consistently uses that adjective with eternal life. Eternal life is, is not just that we have life as a result, but it's the aspect of that that life is for eternity, right? That's the way that that adjective used is, is, is used, right? Especially, uh, we're going to see that contrast later, specifically with eternal life and eternal destruction or eternal punishment. Um, what's the other one? What's the other descriptor that's here? Huh? It is. It is punishment, but even more. How is eternal destruction described? Away from the presence of the Lord. So there, there is a there is a being with the, in the presence of the Lord, and there and, and and being in this eternal destruction is being described as being in a state that is away from, outside of, distanced from the presence of the Lord, right? And so again, this there's other this is not a slam dunk case in itself, but it's starting to show that that the destruction is being used in more than just a ceasing to exist way because there's, there's some implications here. We're going to see it fleshed out more that, this, that there's a, there is a um, destruction is really this. There is a existence because it's an existence away from the Lord. This destruction is being, dis, this, this, but the separation from the Lord is being described with this term of destruction. That's what it, it means to be away from the Lord is, 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 is with this term. You, you follow me so far? Yeah, it, it would be, and, and if, if you were John Stott, you could, you could try to make the argument saying, well, to be away from the Lord, you know, is, is if you're destroyed, then you're not with the Lord. But again, you're, you're just, it's being described is 
is a presence away from, out of the presence of. And so, again, this is not the final, but I'm just saying that this is, destruction is being used in some different ways here. So let's, then let's look at, as, as continuing here, look over at, at Revelation chapter 17. So, so let's look, uh, chapter 17, verse 8. Um, here specifically is talking about the beast, but it's talking about the beast that's headed for destruction. So again, we're here looking at the same word here. Uh, so it says, the beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to, so it's saying this is going to happen, about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Well, what is that destruction? John's going to further describe this. Uh, let's see. Um, so uh, verse 11 uses the same thing. And then we see what is this destruction? You have to go over a couple chapters of where this, this is headed. Chapter 19, verse 20 says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who was uh, in its presence, had done the signs by which it was deceived, those who had received the mark of the beast and the worship of his image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So what is the destruction? The d- destruction is this thrown into the lake of fire. Well, is the, is the lake of fire annihilation? Is the lake of fire, then they cease to exist? Well, you have to keep reading through what John's describing about this fate. Look at chapter 20, verse 10. And it's describing that, um, that all this is going to happen and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, then after the thousand years, verse 10, and the devil... Um, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the, where the beast and the false prophet were. So the devil's also thrown there. Um, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you're having day and night. This is a, a chronological time. Um, this, this, this being tormented, it's, eternal, it's, it's eternality language, right? Um, and um, so John Stott would say, well, but that doesn't refer to any people, right? Well, First of all, it is, it's, it's used, this is what's being determined, that, that term destruction. Destruction in the context here is not being used as a, a, as a extermination or cease to exist, but a, a eternal torment. And, you know, what Stott stop misses out, if you just go forward five verses to verse 15, that we see that this is not just the fate of the beast and the false prophet and Satan. Verse 15, it says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was also thrown into the lake of fire. And, and so the, 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 the argument just doesn't hold up. It just doesn't hold up that, that destruction means by its very nature, um, uh, that destruction is used by its very nature to mean extermination or annihilation. Uh, additionally with that, Destruction is not the only term that's used. This, this is really one of Stott's, I think, biggest problems, is that he focuses on this word, but, but he's missing that there, that this, this, this um, consistent usage of other language to describe hell. And, and as Dave said earlier, he said, well, destruction, if I talked about the football analogy, that's using it in, with imagery, right? And I would say that all of Jesus' image, all of Jesus' language speaking about hell is being used as imagery, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, images of darkness, images of separation, images of fire, that they're all being used with, with imagery language. And, and, and the broader aspect of this is speaking to um, not, not, you know, can't be explained away just with this aspect of annihilation. So, um, uh, yes? Uh, it, it, I've always uh, took the structure to, to mean ruined. Yeah, I think, and, and as we're saying, cease to exist or... Ruined um, or um, uh, torment, 
You know, that there's, as we look at the way language works, if this is all the uses for the word destruction, we see that language is used in different ways. And so, um, and, 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 and what, is, what seems to be indicated, first of all, by the synonyms that are used to speak about hell, along with the way that this is used specifically in Revelation, um, and also I think that there's hints there in Second Thessalonians, is that destruction is, is being, it can mean either by its very nature, because words are, are moldable to context, but the w- way it's being used gives more evidence, evidence there. So, yeah. So that's Stott's first, first issue. The second issue is dealing with the justice of God. So Stott would argue um, that there is a, an apparent disproportional imbalance between the sins committed in time and punishment that's eternal. And, and I think that that's, a, a, a something, that's something that's going to come out, not just from Stott, but there would be others as well who would object to this point. Um, and and the, his point is, how is eternal punishment, eternal punishment a fair punishment for temporal sins? How is that just and how is that fair? Um, And now there's a broader issue with that, right? There's a broader issue with that question. Um, uh, Peterson deals with that in his article of there is a broader difficulty when it comes to our really laying our understanding of fairness and justice upon God who created us and revealed to us that there is a need for fairness and justice. Why do we have a desire for fairness and justice? Because we're created in the Imago Dei, that we have this desire. And so that, that we would then say, we understand justice and God doesn't. And so my standing of justice is, is greater than God's understanding of justice. There's a, there's a, I think there's a difficulty there. But I think if we, even if we set that aside for a minute, um, this, is, this has been, um, you can trace this argument all the way back to the Middle Ages. Uh, and I'm, there's a quote, I don't know if I... T- I don't know if I put the Thomas Aquinas quote in there for you. I did. So Thomas Aquinas even dealt with this back at, in, in, in his time. Um, and, and it really, that, that Stott's argument, it, it really has difficulties both biblically and also logically. Let, let me look at both of those. First of all, biblically. Biblically, we have to look at what is at its core, what is sin. Right? So turn, turn to Romans real quick. We looked at this when we were when we were going through Romans on, 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 in our worship service several, well, maybe, maybe it was a month or two ago, but um, <clears throat> at its core, we have to think biblically what is sin. When we think if, if sin is just, I, I wronged John, and because I wronged John temporally and, and um, in time and, and, and briefly here, that I suffer eternality in hell, then, then I could see that there's a, a struggle with that logic. But I'm starting with the wrong, de- if I start with the wrong definition of sin, then, then, then I'm not going to see the proper perspective of what justice demands for sin. We need to start with the right definition of what sin is, right? And so, so what, is, what is sin by, by, at its core? Rebellion against God. Rebellion against God. Right? Sin is not a, just a moral problem. Sin is not just an ethical problem. Sin is not just a, I've broken the law or I've harmed this person or I've broken a couple you know, rules problem. At its core, sin is an act of rebellion against the infinite holy God of the universe. So, so look at it. Uh, it's a worship problem. Look at Romans 1, 21 through 23. Yeah, oh, sorry, Romans 1. Yeah, Romans 1, 21 through 23, it says, For although 
They knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became foolish in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I think that's one of the best descriptions of sin that we have, that sin ultimately is not just about me and John. Sin is not just ultimately about me and the law. Sin at its root is about an act of rebellion against the immortal and infinitely glorious God of the universe. It's a rejection of him. It's a rebellion of him. It's a refusal to worship him. It is cosmic insurrection. And so Thomas Aquinas and others with him would argue that if our offense is against an infinitely glorious God, then that would make us guilty of an infinitely heinous transgression, which deserves an infinitely wrathful response. So, so um, let, me, let me read time Aquinas' argument. He says, further, the magnitude of the punishment matches the magnitude of the sin. Now, a sin that is against God is infinite. The higher the person against whom it is committed, the graver the sin. It is more criminal to strike a head of state than a private citizen. And God is of infinite greatness. Therefore, an infinite, uh, should be a pun- period there, sorry. Therefore, an infinite punishment is deserved for a sin committed against him. Um, John Piper would put it this way. He would say, um, and I've used this, this analogy before, that, that I think that even, even in our, our fallenness and in our fallen logic, we, we understand aspects of that, right? And, and, and I've said before that if um, Nathaniel's, he's eating a donut before church and um, who can, I, I can pick on Dave. It's all right. Uh, so uh, there's two days. You can take your pick. No, Dave, one of them is his dad. Probably not do that one. Uh, CPS might get called. Uh, so, so Dave Miller comes uh, over and he punches Nathaniel in the face and he takes his donut, all right? That's an offense, right? And it's an offense where, uh, you know, we'd have to talk to Dave. We have some issues there. And, and you know, maybe, maybe you press charges. It uh, depends on, on, on several things. But you're like, Dave, that just wasn't, wasn't good. Yeah. What kind of a donut was it? That's a question. Man, it, it'd have to be pretty good for a face punch. So maybe, I don't know, apple fritter maybe? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, but... But it would be different. It would be different that if, if one of the little babies, right, or maybe, maybe toddlers in our church was having a donut, right? And Dave went up to him and Dave wanted his donut. And so Dave punched the baby in the face to get the donut. We actually would have a greater reaction of offense at that. There is something more heinous with this, why? It's, they're, both, they're both image bearers of God, but there's something due to the, the particular innocence, right, of a child. Defensive. Yeah. They come. There's vulnerability, but there's also an innocence there, right? Now, we'd also, on the other hand, we'd also, so there's something with, with purity and innocence that we have at greater standard. We also have that understanding with something that, that is more, more glorious and more valuable. So, um, so let's see. Bob's just looking at me. He's ready for it. Okay. So let's, I use, again, I've used these illustrations over and over. I think they're just so good. I remember I, was, I remember I was working out and I was listening to Piper preach on Romans. I'm like, this is so, this is so right there. And, I, and it's just, he just basically stole Aquinas. So that's all right. So I'm stealing Piper. Um, so let's say Bob went over and he spray painted and did graffiti all over the, the, the school across the street, right? He would get community service. He would get a reprimand. Um, you know, he probably wouldn't have to spend time in jail, but there'd be consequences, well, let's say Bob got a plane ticket and he flew over to the Louvre and he spray painted the Mona Lisa. 
or went over to D.C. and he spray-painted the Declaration of Independence. He's not just getting community service, right? He's not just getting 20 hours of community service and we're going to call it good. There, because the more value, the more gloriousness of those, that, that's worth that's attached to those, those pieces of, of, of documents, there's a, a greater penalty we just naturally by our own inclinations understand. That's, what, that's the point that Aquinas is trying to make. That when we understand that, that our sin is rebellion, not just against an, a fellow man, but against the infinitely glorious and holy God, that, there, that there's, an, there's an infinite um, weight to that offense. That, that, that's Aquinas' argument there. The problem yep. I see with that is that on one hand we, we, we see that and we say we acknowledge that, right? Uh-huh. So we kind of trust in our own, under, we, what naturally comes to us that the baby is it's a greater offense against the child yeah. than, than against, you know, Mulkey, let's say. Yeah. Then, but, uh, but then we throw out of hand the same sense that we have about that, that a, a life is to eternally punish a life uh, you know, forever, uh-huh. that we say, oh, well, we can't, we can't really trust ourselves in that case. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, that, that's problematic there. I, I understand. I guess what I'm saying is that, that if the biblical evidence is, is and, and we're gonna, we looked at, at the vocabulary destruction, we're going to look at the vocabulary of eternality. If the biblical evidence speaks to, to eternality of punishment, and we're saying that, that by nature, Human logic, right, would say that there's a, there's an unfairness of of temporal and and eternal. I think that then to say, well, there's 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 something that 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 our, our human logic also says that there's an understanding of that, and so that's what I'm saying that 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 that, that there are logic in that sense. I think that that is not is not final. Does that make sense? It can't be final in the sense of that that is the reason why we should reject, which is, which is kind of Stott's argument. Stott actually doesn't have a, a biblical argument there. It's a philosophical argument. So, so that saying to, to go against really what seems to be overwhelming biblical evidence. But, and the point that Peterson and Aquinas is making is, well, philosophical arguments actually kind of go both ways. And so that, that there's not a, that, that, that to be able to, to discard the evidence for that doesn't work. And, and I think actually beyond that, hold on a second, beyond that, I think that there's also a, a problem, and, and Peterson brings out in his article, here's the, here's the greater problem, I think philosophical, again, again, uh, because Stott doesn't have a biblical argument, he has a philosophical argument. The philosophical art logic here is that to say, okay, well, if there's a God, and, and he spirits, clearly talks about conscious punishment, and he consciously punishes people till they, till they fully bear... Um, uh, oh, oh, sorry. There's one. Um, sorry, there's one other argument. Oh, let me get to that first. The other philosophical argument is if they, if they fully bear the wrath of God. Okay, so if someone goes to hell, they fully bear the wrath, and so at the at, at the end of that time, they could just go out of existence. Well, that's a that's an additional punishment in itself. Does that make sense? So, so if someone's fully burned the punishment they they they've deserved, and so then they go out of existence. Well, why are they going getting further punishment if they've already? Bore the full punishment of what they deserve. Well, I would say, I would say that if they've fully borne all the punishment that they deserve for their sin, and at the end of that, the argument from Stott is, then after they've done that, they go out of existence. So that you say is an additional sin. They should just go keep on living. Well, why wouldn't they go to heaven? And, and there's an and Stott hasn't. I mean, he's 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 gone, and, and I believe he's with the Lord now, so I, he can't respond to it now. But. But there's, there's a philosophical difficulty there. If you're saying, here's, here is my idea of what happens, which is what Stott's doing. Right? Stott's saying, the Bible clearly talks about judgment and clearly talks about punishment. 
And so we have to say that people clearly are judged and clearly go to punishment, but Stott's saying that from this, this idea that maybe at the end of that punishment, that when they've fully been punished to as much as they've done and sinned against the wrath of God, then, then they're, just, they're gone. But if they fully bore the rate, weight of their punishment... Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's another logical f- hole there. Again, we're dealing with, with things beyond Scripture because Stott's point is trying to go beyond Scripture, but I think there's a hole there. Um, there's another issue that, that's brought up, and um, I can't remember um, who brought this point. Oh, J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer was, was friends with Stott, and, and so he engaged with Stott on this, and he said, there's also, by very nature of this, you are assuming that people, when they go to hell, when they're punished, that, that it's fixed that they never, ever do evil again that their very inclination towards evil then is changed in hell and there's no longer any further character in hell to punish them. Now, Packer, Packer would use Revelation 22 verse 11 to say that let the evildoer do evil. I think that might be taking that a little out of context. That was not where I would go. But I think he has the right reasoning here because, again, Stott's making a philosophical argument. The way to, the, the, So we're responding to the philosophical argument. But what J.I. Packer says, and I think he's right, he says there's no reason to think that the resurrection of the lost for judgment will change their character. And every reason, to, therefore, to suppose their rebellion and impertinence will continue as long as they themselves do, making continued banishment from God's fellowship fully appropriate. And, and I think that there's, um, again, we're, we're dealing with, with beyond biblical evidence, but again, because Stott's, his argument here is, is beyond the biblical evidence and, and just this idea of, 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 you know, of trying to think through this philosophically re- regarding the justice. Yeah, that. But what we're looking at at this point is we're still looking at it from the point of the law. Because sin ruled and mm-hmm. reigned before the law came. Mm-hmm. So yeah. these people who uh, in, in time past from Adam to, to Moses, yeah. they all died. Yeah. Good though there wasn't a law yep. to condemn them to sin. So, yep. But it sounds like what we're what what, what their argu- what their argument is is that uh, their death is deserving because of the sins that they commit, but they've mm-hmm. already deserved sin because they're separated and born in the likeness and image of Adam. Mm-hmm. So the death that they're getting isn't because of necessarily the law that comes from Moses, because mm-hmm. that was that was uh, after a, a certain set period of time. Mm-hmm. So the death that people are, are deserving and going to is because they don't have the life of the living God within them. It's true, but also we would say, I mean, but Romans 1 or Romans 2 would say whether we are with, under the law, Romans 2, or whether we're outside of the law, Romans 1, that's still rebellion against God. They're still, by your very character and nature. And, and Packer's point is that by, by, by being punished, by being judged, by being punished, that doesn't, that doesn't change someone's character to then be someone who would respond and worship and love God. In fact, the only thing that, that brings that in us is regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That, that's Packer's point. And so as Packer's point is to, to assume that, 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 you know, that, that, um, that there's a, a finite time of, of punishment that needed, that, that's, that's saying that w- would require, again, if that's the philosophical argument, a, a, a character change in them um, in, 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 in hell. And so, yeah. Yeah, Greg. Yeah, uh, apocrypha, but not scripture. But yeah, no. But, but the point. But you made the point earlier. The point is not. It's not a, a, a matter of relativity. Mm-hmm. Do I beat up the kid? Do I beat up the old man? Do I beat you up? Mm-hmm. No, that's not the issue. The issue is what you made earlier. The point is that we're sinners, mm-hmm. and because we're sinners, we're apart from God. Period. Yeah. And if we never, if God never saves us, yeah. then our destiny is not to go spend some time. Mm-hmm. Making restitution yeah. for our sin, 
It's because we're separate from God, period. Yeah. So he sends yeah. us to where we belong. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Stott's, Stott's argument almost sounds, and I was thinking about that when I was working through this, it almost sounds like almost a, a changed purgatory, right? Except at the end of purgatory, you don't go to heaven. At the end of purgatory, you cease to exist. Because um, it's very similar. I mean, his argument of what it's made um, in, in that way. And so, yeah. Um, so, so for me, the trouble is it's not about, it, it really comes back like all these doctrines at heart. Like this, what does that mean about God's character? And mm-hmm. that's where it gets really hard, right, yeah. for me. It's, other people, I think, are fine. Some people, I think, like that idea almost. You know, but, but it, that's the part that I think is really challenging. It's not like... You know, oh, it doesn't fit in with these technical things. I mean, yeah. it's what it reflects on God's character, and that that can be challenging. Yeah. I say that means it's not true. Yeah. The one thing, a question I did have for you, then, Craig, is what what about the idea of um, that we are eternal, eternal creatures? Now, I think that's a really strong argument. It is. It, yeah. But is is that found biblically outside of judgment? Like. I mean, you know, where where we I can't think of where it is that we're eternal creatures because I can see where if we were created eternal creatures, that's the plan. That's the plan. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see otherwise uh, God actually destroying us. Yeah. Is an act would be an act of His mercy. Yeah. It doesn't reward. Yeah. There's some Stott doesn't go into it as much. Um, Clark Pinnock. Uh, who's another theologian? I would say he's probably outside of Christian orthodoxy. Pinnock would say the idea, he, he's made the point that the idea that we are eternal creatures is not a biblical concept, but a Hellenistic concept. It is a, a Greek concept. The problem is, it's not very picked up because you can trace that idea all the way, not just through the New Testament, through the Old Testament, of this, this all the way, I mean, really, I think back to, to, to um, the Imago Dei in Genesis 1, but you see that, that picked up through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, there is really this understanding of the eternality of, of the soul. And then beyond the eternality of the soul, of the importance of the resurrection of the body you know, for, for, for eternity. And so you see that both in Old Testament um, Jewish understandings of of man, of the person, as well as a New Testament Christian understanding of the person that, that Pinnock just has no leg to stand on. So it's, it's really um, not even Stott would, because Stott, you know, it, it, he, he's brought that up and it's so clear as you just, from scriptural evidence, that it's really not gone very far. I, I, he's the only person I've seen made that argument. And again, it, it's, he makes the argument, basically he makes a statement saying, see, this is what the Greeks believed and so it must be a Greek thought. And, and saying, well, but it's also what the Old Testament and the New Testament believed as well. So this eternality, I think, is, 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 has been shown, and, and I don't go as much, but it's because it's, um, a lot of people responded to Pinnock in that way, saying it's just, it's both, it's not just a New Testament doctrine, too, which we, I think we see a, a lot more emphasize of, of, um, the, the, uh, the presence of, of the, um, the presence of the, the inner man, even when the outer man's gone and decaying, and then as well the importance of the resurrection of, of the, the outer man, both for the, the, the righteous and the wicked. But we see that even in the Old Testament, that there's a, yeah. this, this, this aspect of eternality. That yeah. Like a really yeah. So that's another one. And, and as I say, Stott doesn't even really deal with that. Peter Ditson does in his article because he was just saying, by the way, this is something that Pinnock has brought up as well. So. Uh, 
Let me just do one uh, real quick. Ooh, okay. Uh, language of eternality. Um, we saw last week, we saw these numerous verses of e- everlasting, eternal, forever, both Old Testament, New Testament. And as we talked briefly, um, Stott would say, when those words are used, they, they mean the age to come, but they don't talk about chronology, or they talk, don't talk about the, the eternal of never ending of, of time. Um, but again, look to Matthew, real quick, just, just one verse. Matthew, just for time's sake, Matthew 25, 46. That, there's, that, that Matthew is, is going to use that, this, this everlasting or eternal language to contrast two things in parallel. He's going to put two things in parallel that, that as this is, so this is, um, and I just think is, is um, uh, I think it's it just, for me, it just, it just makes a lot of sense there. So it says, uh, and these will go away, so the, talking about the final judgment, these will go away to eternal or everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal or everlasting life. Right? It's contrasting. So that the way that life is everlasting is the way that punishment is everlasting, which is, it's, it is an aspect of a state of being, but it's, more, it's also talking about a, 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 a never-ending time. Um, and I've, I've really tried to be charitable with Stott's view. I'm less charitable with the Seventh-day Adventists or Clark Pinnock or others because I think they just throw out a lot of biblical evidence. But I want to be charitable with Stott's view because Stott really does try to explain it from Scripture. Um, and I think he, he I, I understand Stott's emotional wrestling with the issue. But at the same point, I think Scripture is really clear. I think that he's starting with... And I think that as you read him, you can, you can see that he, what he's doing. He's starting with an, an understanding of, I want to find a way for this not to be. And then I want to try to find a way to, to, to squint and see that in Scripture. Because the, the clear overwhelming evidence is, is there. And there's other ways we have to reconcile that and look at that and understand the character of God, and, 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 you know, as Harlan pointed out. But, but we do need to start that, that we, want to, we want a God who really is there and not the God as we would try to imagine him to be. Right, uh, so we understand that this, this hell is eternal conscious punishment. A couple other things, um, really quickly, because I want to get to our a, a, a little bit of application here. Um, finality of hell. Some people look at Philippians two, talking about every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, saying that at one point maybe everyone is going to eventually repent, um, but but there's really no indication of a second chance. Um, again, this is not really in debate for a lot of uh, Christian circles. Um, it's, it's pretty clear. Uh, Matthew twenty five forty one speaks goes from straight from judgment to punishment. Uh, Luke nineteen sixteen and the, the the rich man of Lazarus really speaks about this that that even in the intermediate state, much less the final state, that there is this inseparable chasm. That that what happens at death, that there's a finality after after judgment there. Um, uh, and then also, I just want to spend just a minute, because just really briefly, uh, the question, are there degrees in punishment in hell? There is not a lot of discru- a discussion about this in Scripture. So we need to be careful in, in trying to put different models or thoughts together to go beyond what God has revealed. I think there are some hints that this is possible. Um, we, just for time's sake, we're not going to go, but Matthew 11 speaks about it'll be more bearable for Sodom than Chorazin and Bethsaida in judgment. That's not the main point of the passage, that there's a, a different different aspects of punishment, but it seems to be implied there that, that to support Jesus' argument that, this is, that that's kind of an underlying presupposition. Uh, the same way in the, in the parable of the wicked and the faithful servants in Luke 12, uh, the main point of the parable is to be faithful. But again, one of the underlying presuppositions to make that make sense is that those who are faithless, that it seems like that there's greater punishment for those with greater knowledge. So there's a suggestion, it seems, that the greater our knowledge, the greater our responsibility, and the greater our punishment. Um, but the Bible doesn't give us anything more. 
it doesn't work that out. It doesn't give some system. It doesn't give, you know, well, here's how this all works out. Um, it could be a, a objective differences of that the punishment objectively really is different, or it could be subjective differences of certain people are more aware of the truth that they have rejected than others. It, the Bible just doesn't tell us. So we want to be careful of how much we read into that. Um, there seems to be a hint of that, but how that works and how that fleshes out, they're just God just doesn't think that we need to know that. That's not, that's not as important as the aspect that there is a judgment and that there is this eternal final, uh, final state of, of heaven and hell. And so, um, we're, but where I want to end is, is just a contemplation of hell. And, 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 and here's the thing. Why does God make this truth about hell so predominant in Scripture? As we see, why does Jesus emphasize this so much through his teaching? Um, <clears throat> And I think that there's, there's a couple things that, that just to, to pull out. One is I think that this helps us to understand the justice of God, that the wages of sin is death, and that a just God brings about a just verdict. And, and, and I think that there, there is, there are instances where we struggle with the doctrine of hell and the justice of God for those people that we love, but there are times when we look at, at, um, injustice in the world and injustice of, of what man does to man and what man does against God in the world, that there's an understanding of it is, it is good to know that in the end God will make things right. Vic, Vic and I have had this discussion. I, I, I love talking to Vic and hearing what he's done, especially with those involved, you know, and in, 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 in just the, 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 you know, his work and bringing people out of, 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 you know, human trafficking and slave trade and, and, and sex slavery and all these sort of things. But you're just reminded that there's, I mean, Sometimes we talk about sin and depravity and we forget of, of what the fullness of that can really look like, right? And there is a reason that when God finally brings justice, that heaven will respond in Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation and glory belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. There are times when we look at, at the, the, the pureness of, of depravity in this world and, we, and that there is a, a longing for, for when will there really be justice? Um, and, and I think that that is a... A, there, there are times that that is a, a, a helpful teaching. Um, uh, second of all, that I think the teaching of hell is a reminder to remind us of the glory of the cross. It's different to say they deserve hell and we don't. That we, we see undergird throughout that the point of Romans is that we all deserve hell. It's not that those people out there deserve hell and they're getting what they deserve. The, the point of scripture is that we all deserve hell and we're not getting what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve, hell. We deserve hell every bit as much as those people that, that Vic dealt with in his ministry. But God has provided Jesus as our propitiation. That Jesus bore the hell that we deserved, the experience of the wrath of God on the cross, so that, as Romans says, we might, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We deserve hell. I deserve hell. And, and, and so we can't walk around and say, oh, you, you deserve to go there and I don't deserve to go there because, look, I go to church and you don't, right? Or, 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 or I believe in Jesus and you don't, so I don't deserve it. No, we all deserve it. We, de- we all deserve hell. And, and the only reason, we, we're getting what we don't deserve because Jesus got what we do deserve. So we're reminded of, of, of grace and mercy, right? That's the point of Romans and that, that grace and mercy transforms us, right? It transforms us and how we live that transforms us in our, our holiness. But more importantly, 
as those who've experienced grace and mercy, we show that grace and mercy to each other in the body of Christ, and we show that grace and mercy to the outside world through evangelism and partnership and missions. That, that's the goal, is that we have been those who've been transformed by grace and mercy. We don't have what we deserve, and we can help tell other people that good news, how they can experience that as well. Um, and finally, I think that this is, it, it gives us a heart for the lost. Let me end with, I want to end with this, with this Spurgeon quote, and we got to get into service. I really like this Spurgeon quote. He says this. Spurgeon once said, if sinners be, will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must, must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And so it should give us, give us a greater heart for the lost as well. So let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you. Thank you for this time. And we thank you that you have revealed truth to us because Lord, you revealed what we need for life and for godliness. So, Father, help us. Help us to live light, life in light of these truths. Lord, and, and even if we are still wrestling with how they reconcile with everything else, we know that, that what you revealed is truth. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us through this to, to understand more your justice. And, and, Lord, help us to understand more the glory of, of the cross that saved us from this. And Lord, help us this to, to drive us with a greater and greater burden and love for those that are lost, Lord, that, that no one and, and that you put in our lives would, would, would go, would end up in eternity not being warned and not being prayed for. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.